So it's autumn, a time for harvest festivals and family reunions. And if you're planning on getting together with your family, you should protect yourself and them by getting an updated COVID vaccine. If you are 50 or older, you are at greater risk for hospitalization and death, especially if you have a chronic disease. So get an updated vaccine now. Need more information? Talk to a doctor. Find updated COVID vaccines at vaccines.gov. We can do this. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode on the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today we have Jonathan Lamb. Jonathan is a two-time entrepreneur, early stage investor, focusing on helping helping startups scale their revenue and operations. He's also a general partner at Root and Shoot Ventures. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Brian. Yeah, it's really nice to see you again. You know, really happy to be on the show and excited to chat about all things, you know, revenue revenue sharing or all things uh, VC. So let's get started. Of course. As you know, we like to start with the question, who are you, Jonathan? Where'd you grow up? What was your background like? Great. Great question, Brian. So, you know, I was born in Toronto, born and raised till about four or five. And when I was in about pre-K, that's when I made my first transition to moving to Beijing. So my family, you know, has been in Toronto for about 30 years before that. And I guess they, you know, they uprooted us as a family. And that's kind of where I spent most of my childhood up until university. And in China, it was kind of interesting, right? Because English was my first language. You know, I'm very, and Chinese was my second language, I guess. But growing up in Beijing, it felt very different, right? It was a very different identity. You know, we went to an international school. And the the interesting thing there was, you know, in an international school, I felt like most people kind of just, you know, went there for a few years, you know, whether they worked at some, you know, corporate expat company and they left. But the great thing was, you know, I, I was able to meet a lot of great lifelong friends, you know, family and connections that I really hold dear today. You know, fast forward to even me being in Toronto, you know, I have a lot of close friends around the world and I still have heavy roots back in Beijing, which I absolutely love because I, you know, I love going back there every, every, every chance I get. Yeah, that's really uh, that's a really unique background, you know. Like learning English first, then moving back to Beijing—that's that's crazy. What was the transition like coming back to Beijing as a native English speaker? Luckily, I was four, but I remember I recall the first thing I saw, like when I got to the airport, was just someone spitting on the floor, and I was like, "Oh, that's pretty cool." <laughs> it was just really different, but you know, I didn't definitely did not speak the native native language. There weren't that many expats, you know, back in 1994, 1995. So you know, it was a very interesting transition. You know, I do remember. You know, our first place, you know, it was, you know, we stayed in a hotel for the first month and then eventually moved to a house. But I remember us showering in like dirty water. And this was Beijing, like for, you know, for the first month or so. And but, you know, fast forward to, you know, today, I mean, it was crazy that we were able to kind of see that economic development, you know, from, you know, from the amount of tuk-tuks and bicycles all the way to where Beijing is today, which is a modern developed economic powerhouse, you know, similar to like New York, LA, Toronto, but a lot more developed. And, you know, I, I loved every moment of it. Yeah, I like how you mentioned that too, because I feel like a lot of perception of what China is, is kind of rural and some nice cities, some big cities. But to be honest, like, if you like look into the Asian demographics, it's like these cities are super modern. Like this technology is like eons ahead. Like they have 
subway systems that actually make sense, right? You can get anywhere you need. It's like trying to actively push away from like cars and more towards city planning. So and I'm, I'm glad you're able to mention that on the podcast too, because I don't think a lot of us realize that how developed Asia really is as a city. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point, Brian. You know, especially in the beginning, you know, there's over, there's like over 10, maybe even like 50 million people living in Beijing or at least the metropolitan area of Beijing. And, you know, to be able to, to, to actually like fit that much, that many people in such a refined, confined space. I mean, you can't have that many cars. And it was kind of interesting to see because, you know, there, there was that bicycle craze as well too, where, you know, they ha- they had the, you know, the, the lifts or the lifts of bicycles where you're able to rent bicycles. And it was just, you know, there were just so many of them on the streets and because it was a fast mode of transportation. The subway system is very advanced, uh, very developed. You know, it definitely gets overcrowded sometimes as well too. So, you know, like every metropolitan, they do have some infrastructure problems that they need to address, but it's it's been such an interesting development because, I mean, back when we were there from 1995 to 2000, there was no subway system. You know, there was just taxis and, and bicycles and buses. And, you know, it, it it all got built in less than 10 years for the for the Beijing Olympics. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's absolutely crazy watching like the development of not just like cities in China, but across Asia, Vietnam, Indonesia, you name it. You see all these modern cities. And I want to link it back to your experience as a founder too right what was your first venture like what was it like going through that process was it was in beijing was in canada was it here in the states like how how'd you get your first great great question brian you know growing up in beijing you know i definitely seen it's a really different mentality than it is in canada and definitely see the wide contrast you know beijing on one hand i feel it's a lot more i'll say it's a lot more of a hustle you know it's a lot more shark like in that sense as well too everyone's trying to make it you know everyone's pushing themselves everyone's grinding everyone's working hard and you definitely see that you know in all aspects of life right you know from from the expats to the you know the students to the teachers like everyone's studying really hard and working towards their goal and I think that's a really common thing that's ingrained in our culture, which I found very interesting. And, you know, building, being or developing that mentality, you know, that's always what I really want to be an operator because I definitely saw how they kind of did it in Beijing. And, you know, coming back to Toronto, this is kind of always what I wanted to do. And the funny story, Brian, was the first thing I wanted to do actually right after I graduated university was open my own restaurant. Just because I just, I, I just was always passionate about it. You know, I love food. I love the hustle. I love working long hours. You know, I even did a rotational program in Beijing as my first job, just working at a Japanese restaurant, you know, from being a line cook all the way to cutting sushi to being a waitress or a waiter, you know, in front, you know, just to really get that experience. And I really enjoyed it. But, you know... And unfortunately, that never really came to fruition. So the first company I did launch, and this is really kind of where where I, you know, I guess the other aspect of what I like doing was, and I launched a company called PeerFunder. And this was back in 2015. And I launched PeerFunder just because I really wanted to empower small businesses. And I thought that was really interesting because, especially in Canada, you know, I mean, the transition, number one, from Beijing, you know, really economic development, you know, to all these super apps, you know, to WeChat, coming to Canada, where we're still relying on interact e-transfer, email transfers just to pay pay money. You know, our, our financing system is a little outdated, a little broken. So I felt like there was a lot of innovation to be done. And, you know, especially with small businesses, you know, the funding options were very outdated and limited. You know, it was really hard to get a loan from the bank. You know, there was limited venture capital funding, debt financing, uh, you know, very rigid processes that, you know, that weren't adaptive to, to innovation. So what, what, what we did at PeerFunder was we built this revenue share model for mainstream businesses. And I thought this was really cool because it helped them originate loans by taking a percentage of revenue. And I thought this was empowering and innovative because 
what we realize about most Main Street businesses is that they operate cyclically, especially, you know, during upturns and downturns. You can imagine an ice cream shop does really well in the summer, but, you know, doesn't too well, do too well in the winter. I feel like in Canada, especially, you know, in Toronto, winter, a lot of things kind of operate to a standstill just because it's so cold and snowy. Whereas, you know, in, in for most traditional fixed loans, you know, it's it's rigid and it doesn't really adopt to business needs. Whereas revenue share financing was both beneficial and, you know, and I, I just love that model. And that's what we started off launching. And, you know, we eventually pivoted not just to mainstream businesses, but to e-commerce businesses as well. That's amazing. I mean, thank you so much for even come up, coming up with the idea, right? I think it's very, I think the cool thing about finance is that it's a lot of creative finance that you can utilize, right? Is that that? Honestly, it goes back to I don't know how how the like the educational system is in China and Canada, but like you know you're not taught a lot of like deep finance things like that in the U.S. Right, and it's like, <laughs> it comes down to like understanding like what you're able to work with, what's legal, what's not legal, right, and make things happen. So I'm kind of curious too, like what was how did you end up like exiting that that company? Did you sell your shares? Did you step away? Did you move to the board? I think that topic is not really covered on the Asian Hustle Network podcast, and we'd like to dive deep into like the the exit process of a founder. Yeah, that's a great question, Brian. You know, luckily because like what we kind of did was in order to kind of venture or navigate around the regulation, obviously, you know, issuing shares and issuing securities is a very highly regulated state, regulated space. But what we found was debt financing was a little different. Um, private lending is definitely a lot more open. So what we did at PeerFunder is we essentially grew this to about $10 million in loan origination. So I built it from scratch, you know, continue to raise capital from private lenders and deploy capital from Main Street businesses. And and, and e-commerce platforms, specifically in crowdfunding campaigns. Um, the interesting thing about the exit process here was I didn't unfortunately really have as much of an exit, whereas I was able to sunset the business. And this was, this was kind of an interesting process to move into crypto as well too, because I was still operating that business, but I got kind of poached by another company. And this company was one of the largest physical exchanges in Canada. You know, crypto in 2017 was a relatively new concept. And, you know, it was kind of a natural progression for me to kind of move there as well too. So it was kind of a nice transition for me where I was able to sunset the business, let the loans kind of pay its course, pay its dues, and kind of just close the business like that. So in other words, it, was a rel- it wasn't really a successful exit where I get a return on a multiple, but I was able to make my investors happy, to be able to make mainstream businesses able to fulfill their loans, and I was able to successfully transition into my next company. Wow. I mean, thank you for, for covering that too. I think a lot of us always wonder about that transition phase, right? Do I sunset? Do I sell? Like how does how does things work out? And I'm glad that we're able to kind of briefly talk about that. But I want to hear about your second company, right? As you mentioned, there was a seamless transition over to the second one. Definitely want to hear more about that. Yeah, yeah. So great, great, great question, Brian. You know, in 2017, that's really where I began my journey into crypto. I mean, at first I had no idea what it was, but you know, some of my old colleagues or some people I knew for a long time, you know, essentially poached me and enticed me to join their company. This company was growing crazy fast. And this company really had this really interesting product where they were really just launching these physical kiosks across Canada. And you know, this there was only about four or five people in this company. So it was a relatively small company in the beginning when I first joined. But you know, because of their fast growth and because crypto kind of blew up in 2017. You know, I think it went from, you know, anywhere between, I think it was like two or $3,000 all the way up 
to you know twenty to twenty five thousand dollars at one point. This was the two thousand seventeen kind of bull run, and you know they got a lot of attention, they got a lot of demand, and it was such an interesting business model. And you know the cool thing about the company like this is you know they're really trying to build the traditional payments or the traditional fiat on ramps and off ramps. And I thought this was really necessary because everyone talks about the picks and shovels, and these guys were doing really trying to uh, adopt or let people really adopt cryptocurrency as mainstream. And you know. I love getting in the weeds of it. I love being an operator. You know, I love going to stores. I love planting machines. I love trying to, you know, like driving machines or driving trucks, you know, to different store locations and, you know, just physically planting the machines yourself, you know? So I was able to kind of wear the operator hat, but, you know, it really depends on the, the role that you kind of have to place, especially in startup, because you tend to wear all hats as well, too. So for me, you know, as much as I like being the operator, I really wore that finance hat as well, too. So, you know, I was in charge with a lot of accounting, a lot of finance, and especially with crypto, like my realization was like reconciliation is a mess. And this is a problem that a lot of startups are solving today, which I'm really bullish about. But it was really interesting because, you know, using traditional I mean, not to bore you guys, but, you know, using traditional You're not boring, uh, accounting going, software, <laughs> using traditional accounting software like QuickBooks, for instance, right? They only go up to, you know, up to two decimal points, whereas we know Bitcoin can go up to eight decimal points. So you couldn't properly reconcile anything, uh, you know, using traditional accounting software. So we relied on a lot of spreadsheets, a lot of manual processes. And, you know, the really cool thing about this is like, you know, my time at, in you know, at LocalCoin, at Kernel, I was able to kind of see, you know, at least sift through the BS in my opinion. And that's really the difference where I find like my view in crypto is compared to a lot of other operators out there where I'm not really focused as much on the technology, but I'm really focused on the picks and shovels because I feel like that's where the real utility and that's where the real use cases lie. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely love how you align things with your core values, right? And the things that you like to do, it's like, you know, you know what you're good at, you know how to help the business and you stay within that those boundaries, which is a fantastic thing to have, right? So, you know, given the state of the crypto markets right now, as we know, we're a little bit in the bearish side. What are your views on like the future of crypto? That's a great question, Brian. So, you know, like I've been through two, I mean, I'm not going to say I've been in crypto since 2012, 2013, 2014, right? I've, I've only joined in about 2017. So I've kind of been through two bull runs now and two bearish winters now. I would consider this a crypto winter. I think we're just getting started, but we'll see. You know, I would say my views on this is, you know, the strongest founders and the most resilient founders that build in this market will survive. And that's what I, I think, like, if you're still building this market, if you're responsible to manage your cash flows, like, you know, able to, you know, like we look at the stories of Three Arrow Capital, of Voyager, of Celsius, right? It's just a mismanagement of their cash flow, really. You no, know, but if you were able to properly manage and properly have these checks and balances, which most people don't have, you won't be able to survive. With that being said, you know, I'm still really bullish on the infrastructure plays, the ones that are really building the, you know, crypto from the ground up, just because, look, like, Right now, you know, the banking on rails and off rails are getting closer to where they need to be. But in most countries around the world, especially Southeast Asia, like they don't still have access to, you know, to banking needs, especially if you own crypto. Right? There's you're still relying on OTC providers, you're still relying on under the table, and banks still heavily restrict your ability to purchase it. And I do believe that the next generation, the next wave is going to be a game changer, especially during this downturn. Definitely. I couldn't I couldn't agree more with that analysis, right? I think I'm not saying I've been through like all the market changes, but I've been through enough to see that things are going to recover, right? I think that it, there's to me there's parallels and, and not really parallels to the early days of the internet, right? With the, with the internet, it's like a lot of people had doubts that 
whether or not this could be integrated to mainstream society, but now it is. And I feel like crypto and like entities and all those things is just the beginning. Like, of course, I feel like the beginning, there's a lot of hype, there's a lot of excitement, there's a lot of scams. Right? <laughs> but I think over time, it's like, it's going to mature and we haven't given it enough time to mature yet. I agree. I agree with that, Brian. And I do think that, look, the next, I mean, I equate this really similarly to crowdfunding campaigns. You know, at Peerfunder, we're able to kind of give loans. So I was able to kind of see the development of, you know, crowdfunding campaigns, right? When you first heard about Kickstarter, an idea was able to raise you millions and millions of dollars. And, you know, the first wave couldn't really deliver, fulfill on their promises. And, you know, there was, they got a lot of slack or like a lot of flack, sorry, a lot of like, like a, a lot of anger towards the community. And I feel like that's a really the similar thing to the first wave of the NFT. Right, they overpromise. You know, they underdeliver at least ninety percent of them. Let's say, but I think the next wave of NFT builders will actually think about: look, how can I show up my team? How can I provide utility? And how can I deliver on my promises? So I definitely agree with you, Brian. I think I'm excited for the future of of the NFTs and like yeah, the next the wave the next wave of tokens. Yeah, I definitely appreciate your energy appreciate your energy like talking about all these different topics. Right, I feel the excitement. I know I feel the passion in your voice, and. I do want to thank you for helping the AAPI community, right? And for your listeners who don't know, Jonathan helped out with Gordon's birthday. So Gordon did a fundraiser for AAPI organizations supporting representation in media, such as you know, Gold House, Us, Cape, Hate the Virus, you know, organizations that are supporting and uplifting the community. So thank you so much for that, Jonathan. Thank you, Ryan. And thank you for showing support because I know you were definitely one of the sponsors as well, too. So, you know, we're more than happy to support any in any way as possible. And Brian, you're definitely leading the charge here as well. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I, for our listeners, right, Gordon is one of our mutual friends. He's also one of the general partners of Root and Shoot Ventures with Jonathan. Tell us about Root and Shoot Ventures. Why did you guys start huh? that? How did you guys start that? And how did you meet Gordon and your other partner? Yeah, great question, Brian. So let's start with, uh, yeah, let's start with how we started Root and Shoot Ventures. Uh, you know, I've known Gordon and uh, my other partner for a long time now. So, you know, one of the benefits of us like, growing up in Beijing together, despite most people kind of leaving and transitioning, you know, in and out of Beijing, I feel like there's been a, just a core group of people that stayed for about 15, 16 years. And, you know, Gordon and Mike were a part of that as well, too. Um, so I was really fortunate to kind of grow up with them. And I would say, you know, how we started Root and Shoot Ventures was, you know, Gordon and I were definitely, you know, diverging paths right after, you know, high school, university, right? He went to LA, you know, he went to, he studied and I went to Toronto, right? And we definitely did not work in the same industries. But the great thing is we kind of always kept in contact and we always relatively collaborated. Any advice that I needed, any advice that he needed, you know, we definitely kept in touch because we trust each other and we, you know, we respect each other's opinions and thoughts. So we did a lot of angel investing as well, you know, in the past. And fast forward about a year and a half ago, and that's really when we started the fund. You know, we were like, Gordon was investing a lot of deals and I was kind of advising him. And, you know, we thought, why not transition this to a fund, right? Why not just dive heavy and just, you know, try something different, try something new, just because we're getting a lot of deals. You know, these are great opportunities, not just for us and for the AAPI community, but also our network. So we thought, hey, you know, let's start a fund. And that was it. I mean, that was uh, really unexpected. But, you know, looking back, I don't think I would have done anything differently. That's that's amazing, right? I'm really glad that you guys are able to stay in touch since your younger days in Beijing, coming to the States, coming to, well, you're, you're in Canada, coming to North America. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I really appreciate that. And, you know, what is the thesis of Root and True Ventures? What do you guys invest into? What kind of founders do you look for? What kind of qualities do you look for? I know that you guys are very selective in your process, 
but also very endearing to the ones that you choose to invest into. So I want to hear more about that. Oh, thanks, Brian. Yeah, yeah. So I would say we're an early stage venture fund. You know, we mainly focus on pre-seed to seed to maybe seed extension deals, mainly focus on US, but we will make exceptions. You know, the initial goal for our first fund was to invest in about 100 companies spread across three different verticals. Number one is generational shift, leveling the playing field. Sorry. And digital technologies. And, you know, in terms of what we've done recently is we've actually recently invested in, we recently hit the 30 company target mark, which was a great success for us. And yeah, I mean, it's a pretty rigorous investment process. You know, we can explain more in detail for sure. But in a high level summary, you know, in the past year and a half, you know, we've seen about, or we've evaluated over 12,000 companies. We've engaged with over 1,200 of them and invested in about 30. And for us, you know, to, to go from 12,000 to 1,200 to 30, it's definitely a rigorous process. Yeah, I, I can't imagine. So I want to hear more about your fundraising process too. Like, I know you mentioned earlier that you're creating something that's such a win for the community, right? Such a win for your peers, your network. I want to hear about how big, how big is this fund, right? How'd you raise your first million? What was the struggle about raising the next and, and the next and the five to 10 to like whatever size fund you are? Yeah. I, I feel like there's not enough information about that online. And I want to make sure that if those are interested in venture capital, know how to get started. Yeah. Yeah. Really great question, Brian. You know, number one, you know, they're raised. I mean, look, when we first started, we actually didn't even know what we were doing. I mean, that was the kind of the interesting thought, right? Because as first time fund managers, as emerging fund managers, we were still kind of figuring things out as we, as we went. But what I loved about what we did was look, you need to fit like in order to raise your first million, you need a network. It's very similar to raising startup capital. I mean, it's no different where when you're raising a fund, you know, you need a network of at least a hundred different prospective investors. You know, you rank them from top tier to bottom tier and you need to be go and speak with them. And I think the, you know, and that was, and I know we had, a, there will be a, chuckle, uh, a question later, but you know, you know, for first time fund managers with little track record, uh, you know, and the fact is like venture as an asset class is hard to understand. You know, there was a lot of like interesting things about first joining in, right? Because what we realized was number one, the industry was a little closed off, you know, and, but, you know, and there were, and most large institutional managers will often ignore first time fund managers, you know, for the first funds. So as first time emerging fund managers, we really had to depend on our network and, and high net worth individuals. And that's what we, we set out to do. And it almost kind of interesting was, you know, getting it off the ground was difficult. Right. Sometimes it felt like a lost cause because you pitched over 20 investors and it's first time for fund managers, right? You, you, we get it. We have to prepare for a lot of rejection, right? You work your way through five meetings, you know, through 10 meetings, you know, just to end up getting a flight reject. And that's what we just kept pushing, right? It's just, it's just a grind. It's just a hustle. You just have to keep putting yourself out there, keep networking and just keep building your story and keep building your thesis. I mean, I think. To date, we have over 25 versions of our deck, for instance, you know, and our thesis is always evolving. But what we love about what we do is that, you know, our process and what we love pitching to our investors is that we methodically and meticulously track our portfolio and all the factors that lead up to the investment. And I think that's really important for the first time fund managers, right? It's to show growth and to tell a story. And, you know, we want to continue to learn and get better investing. Yeah, absolutely. Storytelling is crucial for startup founders pitching, any fund managers pitching, and I didn't catch this earlier. We're still raising capital. We're still pushing forward. And we're still kind of tracking our investments as well, too. So, you know, yeah. it never stops. Yeah, the hustle never stops. That's why you guys are on the Asian Hustle podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jonathan, so what's next for you, man? So you're a two-time founder. You're a fund manager. You're an operator. You basically did every single part of the spectrum, right? Where do you see yourself in like the next five to 10 years? 
Uh, that's a great question, Brian. You know, for me, I personally love investing. I love operating, but you know, being an investor and being able to advise deals or advise companies is something I'm very passionate about. Just because, you know, seeing your success versus Brian would not would not would make me nothing would make me happy, right? I think seeing a lot of companies, you know, follow their dreams, follow their paths, and you know, sometimes it's love. It's nice to see that, right? That sense of. And I think for the next five or ten years, I definitely want to still be in the space. You know, Gordon and I definitely talked about this, and my other partner, Michael, of course. But we're definitely going to be launching our next fund pretty soon as well. So, you know. And I know Gordon's going to talk a little bit about Uni Angels, but what's really cool about our network as well, too, is that we're not fixated on one investment class or asset class. So whatever deals or whatever opportunities come as well, too, we 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 definitely take a look at as well. Like we've recently invested in a Maui hotel, for instance. You know, we're investing in early stage deals. We're investing in everything that's like not a fit for a root and shoot, but will be a fit for our network. Wow. I mean, that's awesome. I mean, I definitely see Gordon's story all the time. I see him working on new construction, Airbnbs, <laughs> hotels, startups. Sounds like... And you guys got your feet and everything. <laughs> I love it. I love I love the hustle for sure. So, Jonathan, we have one final question for you. And that question is, if you can restart any point of your career, what would you do, what would you have done differently? Oh. That's a really good question, Brian. I think my initial skepticism of crypto led me to be a lot more bearish than I should have been. So I think if I were to restart my career, I think I would have invested a lot more into crypto, a lot more of my net worth. I mean, this is hindsight 2020, but because I was in the industry, I mean, I should have just, you know, went all in for instance, but my cons- I, I wear my conservative, my finance hat. And I was like, yeah, I'm only going to diversify, you know, 5% to 10% of my portfolio in Bitcoin. And that's, that's it. So I think if I were to restart, I think, uh, you know, I would change my investing strategy. I think I'd be a lot more aggressive. Definitely. I mean, it is a high risk, high reward type of feel, right? And mm-hmm. let's be honest here. It, only a few select hand of people would invest over like an X amount into crypto, like back in like, <laughs> 2013, 2014, right? What is this crazy new technology? Like, I don't know. High, as you said, right? High sign 2020. Looking back, it's like, oh, I should have done that. But... <laughs> but Honestly, the way I view it, it's like you invest whenever you're ready because there's always going to be more opportunity that will come your way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's so true, Brian. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I don't really regret anything that I've done in the past. Everything's a learning experience. Everything is a new chapter. And you, know, you always push forward because if you dwell on the past, you're never going to really be able to to push yourself or or to to get yourself out of your comfort zone. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. So Jonathan, how can our listeners find out more about you and reach out to you, reach out to you online? Yeah, yeah. So please check out our website, rs.ventures, or, you know, if you guys are interested in learning more about VC or learning more about the fundraising process, you know, as AAPI founders or like as, you know, if you guys do need any help, we'd be more than happy to help. So, you know, you can shoot me an email at jonathan.rs.ventures, you know, and please, yeah, I'm definitely available for a call. call. Definitely. We'll include all that in the show notes. And thank you so much for your time today, Jonathan. Thank you so much, Brian, for this. Of course. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.